Welcome to the Facts versus Feelings podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Dietrich, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sonu Varghese. Cutting through the noise in 30 minutes each week, taking out the boring and helping investors focus on what really matters. A quick note before we start the show, investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Carson Partners, a division of CWM LLC, is a nationwide partnership of advisors. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the 26th episode of Carson's Facts versus Feelings podcast with Ryan and Sonu. We have an extremely special guest today. Sonu, we're not going to say who it is yet. If someone saw the title, they know who the special guest is, but maybe somebody doesn't quite know, so we'll draw up some uh, suspense here. Just how excited are you about today's uh, featured guest? I've been looking forward to this uh, ever since we planned it out, so it's been several weeks, and I've been a huge fanboy of our guest today, an extra special guest, certainly, so absolutely excited and honored to be here today. No, no question. You you went to India. I might talk about that a little bit more. You went to India recently, just a couple of days ago, to see your sister uh, for her wedding, and you read his book on your way home. So you might even yes. know a little bit more about what he wrote, you know, thirty years ago than he remembers to this day. But with that, we're gonna we're very proud, uh, Carson's facts versus feelings, to welcome Professor Jeremy Siegel um, as a guest. Uh, we are huge fans. But Professor Siegel, let's start off with the question that everybody's asking. Did you really have Princeton in the Sweet 16? <laughs> no. Uh, I don't <laughs> think anyone. I mean, you know, it's rare for an I, the, and we're an automatic entry, the Ivy League team. And 90% of the time we lose yep. our first game. And then 90% of the time if we make that, we lose <laughs> our second game. So to, to win two in a row, although I will have to tell you that way back then, probably before you guys were born, but I think it was in the um, – 1970s uh Penn made it to the final four uh it got blown out there but uh we did make it there that was when it was always regional and the regional head and wasn't mixed um we were strong in the in the region um but uh yeah it's really rare (laughs) no it is I mean I don't know what's more rare right the activity in the bond market where we've had (laughs) seven days in a row of the two-year moving 30 basis points first time in history or, like you said, an Ivy League team looking like a potential national champ. But listen, let, let's uh, let's just get into it again. We are so honored to have you today, Professor Siegel. I know that was the softball. I gave you a softball. Sonu's going to come in with a little more heat. Sonu, uh, why, why don't you let, let's kick off the podcast with some questions for Professor Siegel. Yeah, I, I don't want to talk about uh, March Madness because Purdue lost. So, <laughs> yeah, <that's true>. <laughs> but <laughs> so stocks for the long run, right? I, I mean, you know, I have the book next to me. I'm I'm not going to pick it up because last time I did, just before we started recording, I think I banged my mic or something like that. So it's I, a heavy I, I, book. I show yeah, you, but so stocks it's for a the heavy long, book. It's a heavy book. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of good stuff in it. But Professor, look, the, you published the book in 92, and we've had so many crises since then, right? You had the Asian crisis, the long-term capital management, tech bubble, the bubble burst, great financial crisis. And then the last decade was European debt crisis, China. Then you had COVID, inflation, Fed, all of this stuff, right? But stocks have just continued to move higher and higher over the past 30 years. I mean, close to just about 9.5% annualized return. I was looking at that. So, Let's start there. Let's talk about, you know, why, why do stocks continue to do better than every other asset class over the long run? Well, you know, Sono, you, you hit the nail right on, on the head there. Um, the first edition of Stocks for the Long Run came out in 1994 using data through 1992. Uh, and I computed back then 
that the real rate of return on stocks, that's, that, that's uh, you know, capital gains plus dividends after inflation uh, from 1802 to 1992 was 6.7% per year. What is the fascinating thing is when I finish this book, 30 more years of data. Um, and guess what the real return on stocks has been in that last 30 years when all those events that you just mentioned have occurred 6.7% per year after inflation, which is really quite remarkable and shows you the long-term persistence and stability of long-term stock returns. Oh, it's wow. incredible. And yeah, I, I, so maybe, you know, I, I know you just published a sixth edition. So what did you add in there? I think both Ryan and I are definitely curious about crypto here. Yeah. So your thoughts on, you know, there are these new asset classes, right? So maybe, you know, talk about what about crypto? Because I think a lot of young people are probably thinking about, wait, should we get into crypto now? And, and then there's always a question of things like gold, right? right? So maybe give us some perspective on that too. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, there are five new chapters there. I have added crypto to one of the other chapters, which is called Gold Money, the Fed, and Crypto, adding a whole section uh, on crypto. I've added uh, really expanded value and growth factor investing. We could get that later. Inflation and, and stock prices, interest rates uh, uh, and stock prices. So there's been uh, it's the biggest revision that I have. Um, crypto, I kind of thought it was like the, the millennials gold. Uh, when I knew that inflation was going to, you know, hit after the COVID crisis, I, I was first recommending gold, but I saw right away that, uh, you know, that wasn't the attraction like it was in the 1970s. It was really uh, crypto. Now crypto got way too high and, and suffered a lot of drops. I'm not what I call a crypto fan, but I'm not a, 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 a crypto uh, um, skeptic. I, I'm neutral on it. So let me um, jump in. You're you're not you're not Charlie Munger. You're not Charlie. No, Munger, no, I'm not Charlie Munger. Who thinks yeah. It's okay. like yeah. the, the world's greatest scam <laughs> yeah. out there. Because yeah. I really think <laughs> yeah. that there are, uh, as we can see, there are problems with our banking system. There's problems with the uh, what we call a fiat money system, which uh, the world is basically on. Um, uh, that has a tendency towards inflation, uh, that has some instabilities. I mean, clearly, the run-up uh, since the banking uh, crisis of SVB um, less than two weeks ago, uh, yet uh, as we're recording this, uh, is, is really fueled by, I mean, it's, it's telling the story of crypto. I mean, that's the story they were t- telling. Don't think you can trust the banks. And I think they've been, you know, everyone over 250,000 insured and all that, they said, hey, I might might as well now go into crypto on that. And that's what I think fueled the big rise. Um, crypto still has not um, proven itself as an effective medium of exchange. I know that, you know, uh, you know, two or three years ago, we all thought we were going to walk into Starbucks and buy our lattes with uh, crypto. That has not happened. Um, and even, uh, you know, certain countries, uh, I believe it was El Salvador, um, that was going to yeah. adopt it as an official, uh, currency. It has not really worked out well. So it's got a long way to go. What it is good at international exchange, uh, I mean, not exchange in, in the sense of, you know, when we travel and use visas, but when we, I'm talking about immigrants and, and, and people who want to sell 
30, 50, 100, 200, 400 dollars uh, by Bitcoin, it's in a very effective way instead of the very cumbersome international money yeah. system, which charges a lot of these people 10, 15 percent, which is outrageous. So there are efficiencies. Again, it hasn't reached money status, but uh, banks have to become more efficient if they want to keep their monopoly on uh, mediums of exchange. Uh, really interesting. You know, one thing that just came up, you mentioned your first edition was in 1994. Again, thinking about different people that listen to this. I'd like to see, in your opinion, what's changed since 94? I guess just thinking to me, two things that I've got, um, you know, just how connected we are, right? I mean, the 16th largest bank was just taken down because a bunch of guys were on WeChat all at the same time. I mean, that's that's the truth, right? And the other one is the Fed. Back in 94, you didn't even know when the Fed was hiking or cutting. You had to, like, find out later. You might know exactly how it worked. But now we all know when the Fed meeting is, and we're looking forward to it every six weeks, or maybe we're not looking forward to it every six weeks. Those are two things that have changed. I mean, you want to add on those? Or what else is new in the world of investments uh, since 94, since you wrote your first edition to your book? Well, you know, certainly I, I think ETFs. Uh, I mean, uh, there was none back then. Yeah. I mean, I, I forget when the spider first came out, but, you know, maybe it was 20 years ago, 25. But I think and and electronic. I mean, you know, the Florida New York Stock Exchange used to handle 90 percent. Now it handles what? 10 percent of that. It's all like everything is electronic. Uh, the disappearance of commissions, of course, you're indirectly paying for it by bid ass spreads, but even they have collapsed uh, from what it used to be. I mean, you know, back when I was younger, it was, uh, you know, you, they used to trade an eight, eighth of a point, um, and uh, that was the minimum bid ass spread. Now, you know, it's a penny or, or two pennies, and commissions were set by uh, the New York Stock Exchange that could not be changed. Uh, that, that was eventually abolished uh, in the late 60s. I mean, so there's there's huge changes, and the, as you said, the lightning speed by which information flows that could cause a bank run, like on Silicon Valley Bank, or um, or, or 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 I mean, uh, or of course the communication that caused the the Reddit crowd, the short squeezes, uh, the meme stock, none of that, none of that was in existence back then. But the basic principles of investing. And as I said, the real return on stock being the best of all major asset classes uh, has still persisted. And so, so on that, and so real returns, basically returns, nominal returns minus inflation. So let's talk about inflation and the Fed, Professor Siegel. You were well ahead of the Fed in late, this is mid to late 2021, saying the Fed needs to raise rates. They didn't. Now, eventually they caught up. And are they are they going too far now? What, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think they are. I mean, you're, you're absolutely. I would, you know, being schooled in monetary theory and policy, um, as I was in uh, 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 in in at MIT, and then teaching at the University of Chicago for four years with my colleague, being Milton Friedman, the last four years before he retired. I mean, I really understood how money causes inflation. And when we bursted money after COVID, I knew that inflation was going to be rapid and, and, and come in, in a year. And uh, all this talk about transient, I thought was garbage. And I said so from day one um, uh, that it was. But then when I saw they clamped down on the money supply so much that actually 
in 2022, might be interesting you to know that we actually had the biggest decline in the money supply since the Great Depression of the 30s. I began worry, and I said, "Listen, they're they, they've got to go softer. They're going to cause another crisis on the other side." Um. So, and I mean, I'm 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 not saying this is not going to be turning into Lehman or anything like that. But uh, I think they went up too fast. They did, they ignored the effects on the banking system, raising the probability of a recession, which I don't think was necessary. We were slowing inflation. Inflation has slowed dramatically. So I'll jump in there, Professor Siegel. By the way, 26th episode, Carson's Facts versus Feelings uh, with Professor Jeremy Siegel. So we are recording this before the Fed meeting. So by the time someone's listening to this, there's a good chance the Fed meeting have already happened. What do you think they should do? But what do you think they're going to do? Putting you on the hot seat a little bit here, but what's your take here on, on what they should what they're up to here? Yeah. All right, I put you in a hot thing. I think they're gonna go a quarter. Mm-hmm. Although there, you know, there might be dissents uh on, on uh and there may be some that still want fifty then want to ignore all this. I don't know. There might be dissents. We haven't had a dissent in over a year here and uh, uh on uh on the Fed. I've actually criticized the group think of the Fed. But I think they're going to go a quarter, but with much more modest guidance. Um, we're going to get the dot plots. Mm. And, you know, it depends on when these bank presidents turned in their projections. Was it before, the, uh, you know, SVB or after and how much after? Yeah. But I think what Powell says uh, in the press conference that will follow uh, the meeting is going to be really critical. If he if he might say we raised 25, but. We can afford a pause right now um, and um, and see how things shake out or we can, uh, you know, we, he'll never commit it. But, uh, you know, he could suggest that we might pause given the data, uh, we, the claiming we have made progress uh, on inflation. So I think the words and uh, not so much the dot plots, but the words of, of Powell uh, in the press conference that follow are going to be very critical for setting the tone of the the central bank in the markets um, going forward. Yeah, it seems like the March meeting is going to be so important in so many ways. And uh, so one thing is you mentioned the dot plot, and that's where, you know, Fed officials give their estimate of where they think, quote unquote, appropriate policy will be and what will happen to the economy under appropriate policy. So including the unemployment rate, right? So now they predicted that they or forecast, however we read it, that the unemployment rate will go up. It's almost like they want to see that. So I'm curious your thoughts about, you know, how does the Fed see that connection between the labor market and inflation? And, you know, your thoughts on, are they even right to see it this way? Well, you know, it's interesting because Powell testified before COVID, you know, I think it was 2019, that, oh, the Phillips curve, which is that classic trade-off between inflation and unemployment, oh, we've shown it's kind of dead. Uh, you know, we, we're not following it that anymore. In fact, the new Fed policy uh, that came out just before COVID really didn't, you know, uh, said we're not going to be looking at that tightness in the labor market. Well, all of a sudden, he, he seems to have gone back to that as being a prime uh, determinant. I've been a big critic of him trying to get wages down. We have a structural labor shortage in the U.S. Uh, ca- caused by a number of factors. First of all, we need more, uh, we mean uh, reform on immigration and more immigration. 
uh, but also the changes that are brought about uh, with all of the mass requirements that uh, during the COVID uh, crisis, a structural shift. Uh, that uh, That's words of Chairman Powell. Um, and if you have a structural shift downward of labor supply, you must have an increase in labor wages to induce people into the markets. So, I mean, it seems to me a wrong policy of Chairman Powell to try to beat down wages when, in fact, we need wages to rise so that people can fill slots that uh, remain empty. Um, now, in the last labor market report, we've gotten a little relief. Unemployment rate rose two tenths of a percent. Um, uh, we, we've uh, seen a little less tightness in the market, but it is still a tight labor market. But the, uh, my feeling is, is the Fed, yes, we'll have a couple more points of inflation on the service side, but we'll be a much healthier economy, and we don't need to put 2 million people out of work cure the uh, inflation problem, which, frankly, the Fed itself created by overexpanding in 2000 and 2021. So you mentioned the economy. Let's go that route. I mean, what do you think about the chances of a recession? I'll just say this. You know, this morning, that Bank of America uh, Global Fund Manager survey came out. Big jump in people expecting a potential recession over the next 12 months. We all go on TV and talk about it. And we see a lot of bearishness out there. Um, do you think we're going to go into recession over the next 12 months? Well, I, I, I think it went up, certainly in this banking crisis. Um, I think it's 50-50. It depends uh, uh, exactly how, you know, we define it. You know, we had last year two quarters of negative GDP growth, which is a technical definition of recession, but the the NBER did not call it because we had such strong employment. So it's, uh, you know, know, exactly what do we mean by recession? Do we mean two quarters of negative GDP growth or – uh, do we mean that the unemployment rate has to go up to some amount? The, 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 the NBER itself does not have a hard and fast rule. It, it looks at four or five different data sets and makes a, a judgment, often, by the way, months later afterwards. So we're not going to get a call suddenly. We're in a recession. Um, uh, I think my feeling is, again, if the loosens up now, we have a chance of avoiding that recession. Um, and I still and I believe and, and still bring inflation down to reasonable levels. Uh, I, I don't think we need a sledgehammer now um, and, and, you know, everything uh, uh, to to cure the inflation. Milton Friedman himself said it would take, you know, uh, 12 to 18 months before monetary policy uh, 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 really had effect on inflation. And believe it or not, it was exactly. A year ago this week when we had the first hike, it's hard to believe we were at zero Fed funds. And now it was the first hike uh, on Fed funds a year ago on this meeting. Uh, so, uh, you know, to, to expect in a year that we solved the problem uh, is, is unrealistic and has always been unrealistic. Sure. Uh, so I, my, my feeling is, is that we, you know, that, that we got we got to. I would, I would, I would say, pause now. Start lowering rates. I see no inflation in the sensitive commodity right. indexes. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So, well, so tying inflation to this banking crisis, right, or crisis? You mentioned that you don't think it's uh, 
you know, anything similar to what we saw in 2008 with Lehman and AIG and all of that. But do you think credit creation will slow as a result of what's happening? Especially yeah, well, I, I think, uh, you know, anything, look, uh, credit creation is, is caused by a lot of loans. I mean, banks create loans and then they give you a, de- a deposit. That's how a lot of deposit mm-hmm. creation, that's how M2 gets created, the most important money supply definition. Mm-hmm. I mean, but, uh, you know, what's been happening is a lot of banks are looking over their shoulder and say, you know, it's a questionable loan. They may not give it anymore because, uh, you know, what will the regulators say? Uh, they may come in and say, well, you know, this guy didn't deserve a, a, a loan. So it puts a chill. It's almost like raising the Fed funds rate. Uh, and so you're not scared away by the price, but you're scared away by the lending standards suddenly jumping up, uh, which is a de facto tightening. So, you know, what we saw with SBB Bank, I think is like two or three 25 basis point increases in Fed funds rates. And that's why, you know, my my exactly. my recommendation would be that they take it really easy right now uh, in, until we can get the economy back in its foot. Nonetheless, I think that uh, a 25 basis point hike with a pause implied uh, is a likely output. Again, there's a lot of uncertainty, but as I stand here the day before um, the meeting, um, uh, that's that's the landscape I see. Yeah, I think a lot of people call that a dovish hike, right? Essentially a 25 <laughs> basis points with that dovish look. You know, staying on the theme of the banking crisis of what's going on, FDIC insurance, right up to $250,000. You see, it's become political, like so many things do. People say we should just backstop everything, but you need Congress to get involved. And I guess they're trying to find some back loops to maybe go avoid Congress to do this. What's your take, Professor Siegel, on FDIC insurance and how much should it go up? Should it go up? What, what do you think? Well, I think it should. I mean, you know, it's never been indexed to inflation and it was, you know, set at 250000 mm-hmm. what, 15 years ago. I mean, and I think, you know, I think we should basically have a million. Um, And I think that payroll accounts uh, should always be insured uh, so that people get paid. Uh, You know, it's silly for banks to, you know, you know, if you have a hundred million dollar payroll, a big corporation, does it have to spread it again around a thousand banks? Uh, That's very costly and inefficient. I think payroll accounts should be insured. I think we should go up to a million um uh uh and and i think that uh in a crisis where there's a, a feeling about a run being a problem uh they should have the ability to to insure temporarily until they can s- sort it out and uh if you've been given a a loan fraudulently suppose i go in and i know that you know there's a fraudulent conveyance of a let's say a 10 million dollar loan they give me a 10 million dollar deposit uh, the banks should be able to claw that uh, back out on examination so that the taxpayer doesn't, you know, get uh, t- uh, tapped for that. So I think they should examine uh, deposit. But most of the people who have deposits, it's their own money. It's not that they got the loan from it. But a lot of businesses, a lot of corporations, they have to keep what's called compensating balances at the bank. That's required as long as they get that loan legally and it was done right. Uh, it's wrong, I think, to to have them uh, worry about the safety of their deposit. It seems like this mor- just this morning I saw on the tape the Treasury is thinking about insuring all deposits, albeit temporarily, 
So yes. do you think that's enough then? Yeah, yeah, I think that is enough until we reform the system. Um, because, uh, you know, uh, it, you, you just, uh, the, you know, any even pure 100% solvent bank that's given the greatest loans cannot stand a, if everyone wants to take their deposit out. I mean, a bank transforms uh, liquid deposits into loans. It has to have capital, it has to have cushion, so that, uh, you know, uh, uh, if, if they've made bad loans, it's not taken by, from the taxpayer. And the truth of the matter is, if we look back at the FDIC, uh, it has taken very little, if anything, from the taxpayer, because it's made money, generally. So we haven't been in a situation, uh, even, you know, we insured deposits during the financial crisis, much worse than what we have now, and uh, the Fed actually made money on them uh, on the loans that it actually gave to the banks and and the FC itself, uh, in um, to my knowledge, uh, did not lose any money. So uh, it, it that it's it's really important to for the stability of the financial system, preventing people from suddenly run you know making a run on the banks. Any even solvent bank uh, will fail under those want to know more about the impact the 2024 election may have on the markets and the economy we'll be covering everything advisors and their clients need to know in the lead up to election day including what to expect from the markets news out of washington and what historically happens after elections you can find all of our 2024 election content at carsongroup.com election Very, very interesting. I will say we talked about Purdue. We talked about Princeton. I went to Xavier University. If you watch it on the YouTube channel, and you I've have the pen, Xavier don't pin. you? I've got my X pin here. So sweet 16 Xavier. So go Xavier. <laughs> Professor Siegel, this has been awesome. We have less than 10 minutes. It's amazing how quickly these go. So only a couple more questions. You know, let's take a broader. We're gonna, Okay, this is great macro view, Fed, inflation. Let's just kind of do a timeless question here um, that, for, for the listeners. What's one of the biggest mistakes you've seen investors tend to make, um, you know, time and time again? And maybe one way they can rewire their brain not to make that mistake. But what mistakes have you seen over your career? Trying to time the market. Trying to time the market. I mean, I know a lot of people that have totally bought into the indexation and broad based. And and yet they still do badly because. You know, they don't, you know, they try to time the market. They get scared at the bottom. They get over bullish at the top. Uh, as a result, you take money out when it's at the bottom. They put more money in at the top. And even if you're purely indexed, you're going to underperform the, the, the S&P or whatever your index is dramatically as a result of trying to, to, to time the market. Now, I always recommend if you love the market, you have a certain amount in index funds. Uh, don't percent, fifteen percent. You can play with trying to pick winners if you like to do that. Um, you know, have fun, but not with the bulk of your you know savings. Got it. On that, speaking of timing, how do you think about valuation then, overvaluation and undervaluation, and even bubbles in general? Right? You know, it's I, I think easy to recognize bubbles in hindsight, but you know, in real time, how do you? Think about that and try to. Well, I look at price earnings ratios of the market. Okay. Yeah. I mean, 
let's look at the price earnings ratio. Right now, it's selling 17 times this year. That's very reasonable. Okay. Very, you know, if you take the times uh, when we've had the, the interest rates on treasuries of 12, 13, 14% and all that, you have a, an average of 18 or 19 on PE ratios. Um, so we're not bought. A lot of people say it's still too high. I mean, even if we have a recession, remember, um, um, and I think if we have one, it's going to be mild. It's only one year of depressed earnings. Um, and I think 2024, in fact, in a way, this banking crisis might be a blessing and surprise to get some sense in the Jay Powell and, and saying, I can't go much further. I have to think of, of, of reducing it. If we didn't get a crisis, he would be on his way to, you know, 6% and more. And then if we had a crisis, it would be mm. much worse. If we can start pausing and lowering it now, that'll make the make the recession, if we have one, and I'm not, you know, I'm saying it's close, and it will lead to a much better 2024. I am more optimistic about 2024 now than I was just two weeks ago. That's such a great ha- glass half full look, considering what we've been through the last two weeks. But I, I think that's the general theme, and you know, stocks for the long run. It's optimistic. I mean, I talked to Ryan, who's fantastic at this stuff. I mean, Ryan, you're on TV all the time. I think your your take is always glass half full as well. But on the other side, pessimism also sells, right? I, I mean, how do you look at? Yeah, because you, you look know, at TV I, all the I, time and I, you say pessimist, right? Well, you are so right. When I remember. One, uh, when I was first thinking of, you know, putting stocks for a long run and, and the first edition, I went around to publishers and one publisher said, you know, that uh, that bearishness and, uh, you know, crisis mongering and uh, ap- apocalyptic type of predictions outsell uh, <laughs> o- optimism three to one, four to one in the market. And I said, yeah, but I'm going to tell what I see there. And um yeah, people love to, you know, they love to buy the book about, oh, God, the end of the world and all that. And all of us are wearing rose, rose-colored glasses. I, I would say 6.7% after inflation per year for 30 years and 100 years and 200 years, um, I think proves those skeptics wrong. The proof's in the pudding, so to speak, yeah. Absolutely. So, Professor Siegel, I mean, this has been a great honor um, where can people find your work more? Obviously, you're on CNBC. You do amazing work with Wharton. You do a lot with Wisdom Tree. Where can we find more of um, what you're up to? Well, I yes, and um, yeah, and the book is available, of course, on on Amazon at a, at a book, fairly book. decent price. Uh, Stocks are long run, sixth edition. Um, uh, and I also am an advisor to Wisdom Tree. And uh, if you go on to their website, register, I do put out uh, a weekly commentary uh, on that. And so uh, I, I comment around new time on, on Fridays um, uh, and uh, they can uh, access my, my commentary. That's great. And Wisdom Tree has been a fantastic partner to us here Absolutely. at Carson as well. And, you know, shout out to Je- Jeremy Schwartz as well and, you know, uh, he, he is actually of one of my uh, with co-authors. He's been, you know, my right hand man oh. for 30 years. He's worked on four editions of the book, including Future for Investors, another book. 
And um, I certainly wanted to give him credit where credit was due uh, on the sixth edition. Uh, shameless plug. Sonu, I didn't even tell you this yet. Mon- this coming Monday, whatever the date is, next Monday at 5 o'clock, Sonu and I are going to do a Twitter spaces with Jeremy ah, Schwartz and the Wisdom okay. Tree Gang. So, I, yeah, I, Sonu, I was going to let you know that. So, anyway, so I didn't know that. We'll, we'll, we'll be sharing that on Twitter. So, follow me or Sonu. And 5 o'clock Eastern time this Monday for an hour, Sonu. Surprise, surprise. I said yes. I committed you to it. I hope it works. Um, <laughs> we're going to we're gonna do a Twitter we'll space with those guys. There we go. It'll well, Sonu, fun. we've got we've got only a couple minutes. But you have one more question that all, all kind of wrap things up. You know, Professor, are you retired now, officially? Okay, I am uh, retired from active teaching. Uh, I did that a year and a half ago. I was 45 years uh, as a full professor uh, at, uh, at the Wharton School, four years before that at University of Chicago. So I have 49 years, uh, almost 10,000 students, if wow. you can believe that. And I wow. loved my classes, but I, I, I felt I'm going to leave it over to some of the younger guys there. As you know, I'm still extremely busy. I'm still writing and I'm still you know, uh, you know, on, on mm-hmm. CNBC and other networks, uh, trying to give, uh, educate and give what information I can to help people uh, invest in the best way. Now, we're well, glad think... you're not retired from giving perspective and commentary. <laughs> oh, a- absolutely. I think just the past 30 minutes, the, the wisdom and the knowledge that you've shared with the Facts versus Feelings podcast and um, it's just been amazing. So, Professor Siegel, from everyone at Carson Group, uh, from Sono and myself, this was an amazing uh, podcast. We really enjoyed it. And thank you again to the partnership with Wisdom Tree. It's a, a great uh, teamwork that we have with Wisdom Tree. And just the fact that you could come on our podcast, we are thrilled and honored. And, uh, okay, put you on the spot one more time. Who do you think is going to win the NCAA tournament, Professor Siegel? Then we'll sign off. You know, I really don't have a clue on that. <laughs> you know, you were so confident I, in everything I, I, else I, I asked. There's two remaining one seeds in 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 there, uh, but given what's happened to the one seed so far, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, don't, I I would I would uh, burn burn myself. I think you, Ryan, and you, Sonu, probably will get would give a better prediction than I. Well, Sonu said think- Purdue last week, so he doesn't count. I said UConn. <laughs> I'm sticking with UConn, um, so we'll, we'll we'll see. But that is the 26th episode of Carson's Facts versus Feelings with Ryan and Sonu and very special guest, Jeremy, uh, Professor Jeremy Siegel. So, everybody, we'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>